We're in 2 Kings chapter 7. Last week we were not able to finish verse 2 because it was so rich. So we cut it off like baloney and pick it up again this week, right? That's what we do. That way I don't have to come up with a, a title or anything. I'm not near as gifted as Brother Fulton is at titling his verse-by-verse messages. So I'll just let you write your own title in your notes, and that'll be all right with me. 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 2. Last week we read about Elisha promising that fine flour and barley would be sold cheaply in Samaria when Samaria was currently in a famine. And they were surrounded by the Syrian army. And a not-so-bright servant of Israel's king cast doubts upon the words Elisha spoke, which means he cast doubt upon the words that God spoke through Elisha. That servant, if you remember from the lesson, questioned the capacity of what God had on the other side of the windows of heaven. And when he did that, he questioned whether God had the ability to come through with such a feat as what Elisha said, to sell barley and fine flour as cheaply as it's ever been sold. And we learned by studying about barley and fine flour, we learned about the jealousy offering, didn't we? We learned a lot about Old Testament law, but then we learned about Jesus too. And I'll not reteach that. I encourage you to go back and listen to the recorded version on Facebook if you missed it last week. And we're going to pick up in verse 2. If you're just joining us online at 2nd, or if you're just joining us in here, 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 2. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll pick up commenting at the last half of verse 2. Verse 1, then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, and here's the new part of our study, that's Elisha replied to this Lord, this, this servant, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. The king's servant was from the show me state of Samaria. This is before Missouri to the lakes who used to be citizens there. And this man was a man whose sight caused him to be blind to the things that can only be believed by faith. And he would get to see the fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. But the text says, but shall not eat thereof. You're going to see it. But you're not going to get to eat any of it. And don't forget, this was not a far-off prophecy. Though there are some 
prophecies that are very similar to this that are far off. But this was a prophecy about what's going to happen tomorrow. This was a near-term prophecy. When was it going to happen? In verse 1, Elisha said, tomorrow about this time. Some prophecies have uh, are intentionally vague about what the time is, the exact time. Jesus said about uh, the things he was telling his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25, that uh, no man knoweth the day nor the hour but my Father in heaven. But this one, Elisha said, would happen tomorrow about this time. So in 24 hours, this king's servant was either going to be dead or exiled or somehow disabled from eating from this fine flour and barley, but he would see it. He'd see the miracle come to pass, but he wouldn't eat. You know, a very similar thing occurred long before the events in our text. And this king's servant should have known about it and should have learned from it. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 5. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. Now he's talking to Moses. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now Moses was a believer. So if you're a little shaky in the doctrine here, don't take away from this that Moses was not saved because he didn't get to go into the promised land. That is not what's happening at all. It's very clear that Moses was a believer, strong believer. But in Meribah, Moses committed the very sin that would keep him from going into the promised land. He struck a rock. He struck it twice when God told him to speak to that rock that water may come forth. You see, Moses had already struck a rock in the wilderness out of which water came. And the Apostle Paul taught us later that that rock was Christ. And Christ was smitten how many times for our sins? Once. One occasion. Oh, he was beaten many times, but he was smitten once for our sins. And so in striking that rock that second time, when God said to speak to it, Moses ruined in front of the eyes of those people that type of Christ that rock was, suggesting that it, he would be smitten yet again and yet again for our sins. 
So God said, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to see it, but you're not going to go in. So although Moses would go to heaven when he died, and although he would see the promised land, he would not eat thereof. There are many Christians who have lived and who are living now and who shall live, God tarries his coming, who, just like Moses, are not going to see God's best. You remember the beginning of the generation of the children of Israel who were with Moses? Every one of them, who was over 20 years of age, had been born in Egypt. They came out of Egypt, out of bondage. They were slaves. That was their beginning. And then they wandered in the wilderness. They were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked. They were full of unbelief. And because of their unbelief, none of that group who was 20 years and older would enter into the promised land except for faithful Caleb and Joshua. Those were the only two. All of the other children of Israel who went into the promised land at the time God made that statement were under the age of 20. So not only did those refugees come out of Egypt and wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but remember Moses also was born in bondage. And he wandered in the wilderness with them, eating the manna that God gave them. And was all set to enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, that's something he'd never experienced before. It'd be better even than what he ate when he was in slavery in Egypt. Do you remember how the children of Israel complained to Moses about the menu in the desert? They said, would that we were by the flesh pots in Egypt with the leeks and the garlic and the onions, and they were full. This land flowing with milk and honey would be better than what he ate in Egypt. It would certainly be better than what he ate in the wilderness. But because of what he did at Meribah when he struck the rock twice, Moses would not get to partake of God's best in the promised land. And so now, just like then, there are Christians who are content to just pop in and out of church and give an occasional hat tip to their Bible, maybe read it at Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that, or post something on their Facebook from the Bible that they have no idea what it means. It just looks cute. It looks religious. And maybe their their prayer time is mostly at Thanksgiving or when someone is really sick and they want them healed. And they have a general lackadaisical attitude toward obedience to God's word. Those Christians are already missing out on God's best. They've been lured away from God's best by the shiny objects of the world, the entertainment of the world, the stuff that makes the flesh happy. And when they die, it would be a lie to put a glowing obituary 
about how faithful they were to the Lord and to his church. It'd be a lie to write what fine Christian examples they were to those around them. All that could be said is he was saved, yet so as by fire. You know, I've read those obituaries. And they go something like this. You all know if you've been here long, I read lots of obituaries. It's the only way I can find out who died, but they're also very instructive to me. Here's how a typical obituary might go for somebody who fits the bill of the person we're talking about here. Sam was a good-hearted man. He loved to tell jokes, and he was always the life of the party. He had a stubborn streak, and he usually got his way. Sam would give you the clothes off of his back. He loved his sports, and he never missed a Dallas Cowboys football game. He was a devoted fisherman and hunter and loved to ride dirt bikes. His nine grandkids called him Pappy. Sam was an accomplished, award-winning salesman for over 30 years. He toured over 40 countries and six continents. Who would go to Antarctica after all? Sam enjoyed his collection of old race cars, which he spent countless hours painting and fixing and driving with his friends. He was of the Baptist faith. He will be sorely missed. What that obituary said was that there were many, many things that were important to old Sam. What it did not say is how much Sam served the Lord, how much he loved Jesus, how he taught his children the Bible and faithfully took them to the Lord's house. It didn't say what a bright light he was for Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong particularly with many of the things Sam enjoyed. Some of us enjoy some of those things too. But there was an absence of any spiritual testimony other than he was of the Baptist faith. Now, Sam is not an actual person, but the words I read from there are typical of words I read in lots of obituaries of people who say they were Christians. I don't know whether they were or not, but I'm sure there are some who've gone to be with the Lord But this was their life's accomplishment. Friend, I don't know what my obituary will say. I'm not going to write it. My children will. And they will probably write about the things they remember most about me. And what my prayer is, is that I'll be judged by my children as worthy of an obituary that glorifies what God has done in my life and through my service for him. And I want God's best right now, not starting after I die. After I die, I want those rewards at the judgment seat of Christ that come from faithful service. But I don't want my works to burn up as wood and hay and stubble And God has so much in store for us right now. So don't let your life be lived so that you shall see it as Moses 
and as this king's servant, but not taste thereof. Now, whether the servant of the king that we're reading about was a believer or not, I don't know. It doesn't say. If he was, he was about to have his life cut short. Go to be with the Lord and not get to stay here and watch what else God was going to do and how God might use him mightily. But what if he was not a believer? How does that change the outcome of what Elisha said to him that he shall see but not eat thereof? Well, it means this servant would die before this time tomorrow, according to the text, and he would go to hell. That's what it means. And the last thing his eyes would behold would be God's wonderful work in these people as they enjoyed eating that fine flour and barley, the things that they made out of it. Something like that would be the last thing his eyes would behold because the Bible tells us he would see it but not eat thereof. And if he went to hell and cried out as the rich man did in Luke chapter 16, he might even ask someone to be sent to his house to tell his family that God is true and don't come to this awful place where I am. But you remember what Abraham told that rich man in Luke 16 and verse 29 when that rich man said, go send somebody to my house to testify. I have this many brethren and so forth. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And Abraham might well tell this servant of the king. They have Elisha, the fine flour and the barley. Let them hear them. But let's look at another wonderful application of this part of our study. I'll read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14. And you've heard this before, mostly at funerals. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that is dead, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Paul comforted the believers of that day by telling them not to worry about the ones who were dead in Christ because they would also go to be with Jesus at his return. They'd be gathered together. They would not only see Jesus, but they would go to be with Jesus. They would see him and they would eat thereof. Their faith would be made sight. Jesus told us in John chapter 6 and verse 51... John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the, ble- the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, we know we don't eat the literal body of Jesus Christ. This has to do with faith. 
partaking spiritually of the bread of life through faith. And we, my friend, who are in Christ, will see the bread of heaven with our own eyes and shall eat thereof. Even now, by faith in him, we eat thereof. We have seen by faith, we eat thereof by faith. But did you know that the unbeliever, the one who is an unbeliever when he or she dies, will also see that bread of life? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Revelation 1 verse 7, speaking of Jesus when he comes. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. So the lost and the saved alike shall see him, but will the lost eat thereof? That's the question. And here's the answer Jesus will give them. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another. As the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, now those are the believers, the sheep, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, if you skip down in that same chapter to verse 41, where Jesus tells the goats, the unbelievers, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So although the unbelievers and the believers shall see the bread of life, the unbelievers shall not eat thereof. In John chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see, the unbeliever cannot have eternal life because he has refused the bread of life. And throughout his word, God teaches this truth using various people and scenarios. And here, I believe we've learned an awful lot from the interchange between Elisha and this king's unwise servant, whether he was a believer or not. Now, let's look back in our text and go to verse 3, 2 Kings 7, verse 3. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here till we die? Now I've heard some preachers in the past, years ago, read this verse. And boy, I mean, they'd go off on a tangent. Have you ever heard this preached on, brother? This saying, Why sit we here till we die? And what they preached didn't have anything to do with the text, but it was emotional. It was loud and it was usually long. Well, I'd like us to look at it in context with the rest of this passage. During this famine, there were four men who were lepers. 
And they could not come into the city. The, the law forbade them from coming into the city. They were under a shelter-in-place order, weren't they? In a lockdown, except they were locked down outside the walls of the city in some leper's colony, no doubt. And we may take it from this and the next verse that these four lepers depended on the people in the city to provide their food for them and probably their drink and whatever clothing they wore. And I'm sure the, the people left it at a certain place and went back to the city and then the lepers would come out uh, otherwise, how would these sick people be fed and clothed from day to day? And the one leper, or at least uh, it says, they said, why sit we here till we die? So I guess all four of them looked at each other and said, yeah, why sit we here till we die? And based on the next few verses, I think the emphasis is on the word here. Why sit we here till we die? The leper was under a death sentence no matter where he went or who he was, whether he sat here or sat over there or changed nothing at all. He was under a death sentence because of his disease. Now verse 4, if we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the, unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Their predicament came down to three possible choices. Two of them involved certain death. And one of them involved a possible death. Now you think you're having a bad day or a bad week? This story might reframe your perspective just a little bit. One of the things God used to help me cope with the grief I had after my paternal grandmother passed away was the story of Job. And after all, I had buried my 82-year-old grandmother. That was a, and preached her funeral. That was quite a natural and expected thing to do. In fact, it's a natural and expected thing for us to bury our parents as sad as it is. But Job, on the other hand, had lost all ten of his children at one time. Now, he had a lot of other things happen to him as well at the hands of the devil. And looking at his suffering in just that one area alone, losing all ten of his children, and I had two children at that time, helped me tremendously with my own suffering. It made my suffering small and Job's great. And that's what I needed at that time. And as you think about these four lepers, their choices are to die here, to die there, or to die over yonder with the Syrians unless they let them live. And although their leprosy condemned them to death at one point or another, depending on which stage they were in, starvation would kill them faster than leprosy. So they at least wanted to prolong their lives by eating. So today, perhaps you're fretting over whether to fix chicken or roast for lunch, or what to wear to work tomorrow, or whether you should get gas after church or before work in the morning. Some of you may really stress about that. None of these choices will kill you. You feel better now? And what a shame it is that the only hope these lepers could see 
from their own perspective was to be in the hands of a Gentile enemy hoping to receive a morsel or two of food and have their lives spared. That was the only hope they could see. And even in their leprosy, they would have been fed and had their other needs provided for by the citizens of Samaria before this famine. And the citizens of, the, of Samaria would have had plenty to eat and plenty to give to these lepers if there wasn't a famine. And there wouldn't be a famine if Samaria had obeyed God and listened to his prophet Elisha, the man of God who was in their midst. None of that would have happened but for sin. Even in their weak physical condition, these lepers also showed us that they weren't very spiritually strong either. They were spiritually weak. They weren't unspiritual. You're going to see that in a moment. But they were spiritually weak. And rather than crying out to God, they agreed to place their lives and their hope in the hands of unbelievers, the Gentile Syrian army. Verse 5. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. No man there. Now that's an outcome the lepers had not predicted. Is that we'll throw ourselves at the hands of the Syrian, we'll go to their camp, and there won't be anybody there. They thought they had all the possibilities covered. We'll die here, or we'll die there, or we'll go over here and we might live, but we might die. There. We'll make our decision from that. And this was nothing short of God's intervention. It wasn't what the lepers expected. God doesn't do things according to our carnal expectations, does he? He does it according to his divine plan, and things happen when God works that we don't predict. And all these lepers thought about was their physical safety. And God not only thought about their physical safety, but he also had a bigger plan that did not involve them throwing themselves into the hands of the Syrians. We're told in Matthew chapter 6, to seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And in that part of the Sermon at the Mount, Jesus had been talking to them about worrying about food and clothing. And how God cared for the sparrows. And he'd care for his people. But that we're to first seek his kingdom. So God already has our needs in mind, our physical needs. Why, he's the one who created everything that provides for them. And continually allows us to draw from them. Oh, God could have done like he did in Joseph's day. Allowing Joseph to fall into the hands of the enemy. The Egyptians, the Pharaoh, the Potiphar. Even going to prison for a crime he did not commit. But on this day, God worked his will differently than the lepers imagined. He used a delusion. Let's look at it. Verse 6. For. Now, the word for is the word because. It means the same thing. And so when you see that, 
you have to remember it's referring back to verse 5. So what verse 6 is doing is answering the question, why were there no Syrians in the army in that camp? Why were there no Syrian soldiers in the camp? Why was it empty? And here it is. For or because the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. It said the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear. He made them to hear a noise. The word made and the words to hear are the same Hebrew word, exact same Hebrew word, and it has to do with hearing. So God's sovereign hand was shown here in what he made them to hear. After all, who formed their ears? God did. And we may infer from the words here that the noise God made the Syrian army hear was a noise they would not have otherwise heard. And what was this noise? It was the noise of chariots and horses and a great host. Now, they knew what that noise meant. And I can't ever remember personal examples to draw on. Our pastor's very good at taking the things that happen day to day to him or that he observes and just putting them right in there and they fit perfectly. Well, today I've got one for you. <laughs> How about it? We're on Interstate 30, a multi-laned highway in Rockwall County. And I was in the number three lane, and to my left was an 18-wheeler. And I don't like to drive next to 18-wheelers, but we happened to both be doing the speed limit. And I wasn't going to budge, and neither was he. Well, I started hearing a noise. And I recognized that noise to be the sound of a tire that's about to blow. And so as that 18-wheeler eased by me, I looked down and I saw on the, the semi-trailer tandem, one of the outer tires was bouncing up and down. And so I backed off, switched all the way to the left lane, and I told my wife and children, I said, that tire's about to come apart. And when it does, it will throw its debris into the lane where I was. And about 30 seconds later, that's exactly what happened. A huge piece of that tire and they weigh a lot. I know I've pulled them off the roadway. Huge piece of that tire tread came off into the very lane where I was. Now, why was I able to avoid having that thing strike my truck, break my window, and do whatever other damage it was? Because I was familiar with the noise that it made. I was familiar with what I saw, and I knew what was about to happen at some point. So I moved over. So when God caused these Syrians to hear the noise of a chariot, the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and of a great host, meaning a large army, that was a sound they were familiar with and it scared them. They knew what it sounded like when just one or two chariots and maybe a horse or two were coming and then when hundreds, maybe even thousands were coming. It's a big difference in the noise. God sent them a delusion, didn't he? As we'll see in a few words. He caused them to hear something 
that was never there in the first place. In fact, this was not only a delusion, but from man's point of view, you might even call it a paranoid delusion. After all, even if they had heard the noises of chariots and horses and great hosts, how would they know it was from the Hittites or the Egyptians? There were lots of armies who could have had those resources. So God not only planted the source or the noise in their ears, but he also planted the source of the noise in their thoughts. And how severe would it be if both the Egyptians and the Hittites came upon the Syrians at once? And even further, without any evidence, at least from man's point of view, these Syrians assumed that the king of Israel must have hired these mercenary Hittites and Egyptians to come upon them. In verse 7, wherefore, now that again refers back to verse 6. Because of the noise they heard, wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. Oh, that brave, valiant Syrian army who was bent on seizing Samaria and its people and all that was in it was now reduced to flight in the face of their fear. There was no Hittite or Egyptian army coming upon them. The Samarians did not hear this sound. If you look in, back in verse 6, it said, The Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise. Not the Samarians, the Syrians. In writing about the revealing of the man of sin, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12, he wrote about those who would be unbelievers in that day. And here's what he said. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice it did not say God lied to them. It said he sent them strong delusion so that they would believe a lie. And these were people who were unrighteous. They were prone to believe lies. They were prone to reject truth. And he sent this same type of delusion to the Syrian army that they would believe the lie that the Hittite and Egyptian armies were coming after them when they were not. Now verse 8, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink, and carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again, and entered into another tent, and carried thence also, and went and hid it. Isn't it wonderful to see how God cared first? 
for these poor, pitiful lepers. They received the benefit of God's provision before anyone else in the city, that sinful city of Samaria, before they ever even found out about it. These lepers were partaking of God's goodness. And yes, the lepers were not spiritually mature, but they weren't unspiritual. They were more mature than the king of Israel and most of the people of Samaria, as we'll see here in a, in a few words. And remember, these lepers were the outcasts of the children of Israel. They were not allowed to be in the city or anywhere near the people. They cried, unclean, unclean, so people would know, stay away. And yet, they were no worse than the physically healthy but spiritually sick and dead people in Samaria. In this passage, God demonstrates something to us that the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." That no flesh should glory in his presence. He fed the lepers first before the others knew anything about it. And look what he gave them. He gave them gold and raiment. So not only did he feed them, but he blessed them with riches and robes. And no doubt their old rags were smelly and torn and worn. And now they would have better clothes. A little more money. Some food and some drink. God is so good. And it says that they hid it. Now here's a point in our passage where these men, these four lepers, may decide to do evil with that which God meant for good, or they could do good with it. Now right now it says they hid it. Who were they hiding it from? The, the Syrians? Or from potential robbers, bandits, or maybe from the people of Samaria. God gave them these treasures for a reason. That these lepers would use these treasures to glorify God and the wonderful work of deliverance that he has accomplished. In the parable of the talents in the New Testament, the Lord over those men who were supposed to take his talents and put them to usury and earn money and that he may have it on his return. He said this to the man who took the talent and hid it in the earth. He didn't say, well, that's good conservative. At least you didn't lose anything. No, he said, thou wicked and slothful servant. It's wicked and you're lazy for doing that. The Lord of that talent intended for that talent to be used to bring more talents, more riches. And God intends for what he gives us 
to be used to bring him glory and more glory. So the next time you receive health as the lepers who were healed or wealth or spiritual reassurance, wisdom, or anything else from God, think of it this way. He's not giving it to me, but through me. He's not giving it to me, but through me. If you'll think that way, then you will know as soon as you receive it that you have a responsibility to use what God gives through you. Now, if you think only, well, look what God gave me, (laughs) then your view of the gift is going to be limited and it's going to be self-centered. Would these lepers soon realize that God gave this food and drink, these riches and clothing through them or simply to them? Let's look in verse, actually, you know what, we're going to have to stop. We're out of time, so come back hungry next week and we'll pick up at verse 9. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for all who have come. Lord, we thank you for the visitors, both in the auditorium and also who've tuned in online. Thank you to our faithful members who make it a point to schedule every Sunday morning, this time, set it aside for the study of your word. And Lord, we pray you judge that the word has been taught faithfully, burn the dross away from anything said that would be confusing or harmful, and may the only thing our people remember is your truth. Help us to live by it. Bless our pastor, our congregation in the next hour. And help us to glorify your name, to lift up Jesus, and to make the word of God that which we hunger for the most. In Jesus' name, amen.